2008 Classics Podcast Remix and Remastered continues for you with the great Mickey Diamond, two-time 25 national champion, and a guy that's a deep thinker in our sport, somebody different. Always been a unique and different guy, Mickey has been over the years, even after he quit racing and he started getting into the freestyle thing, and he started designing ramps, and then he works for All Access Stage. And, of course, now in 2017, he's getting ready to go with Wardy, Doug Henry, and David Bailey to go uh, race across America. And uh, well, I had him out a little while ago to ride my project bike and everything else. And the guy's, the guy's just cool, man. Diamond is just a cool dude. Now, when this, when this podcast first came out, I remember getting hitting up hitting up with, uh, hey, uh, is he on drugs? What's wrong with him? Uh, this and that. And you got to understand that he's a different dude, and he thinks about the question and gives you an honest answer. And that's why the pauses, and that's why he sort of. Uh, rambles a little bit. The guy, uh, he's a unique individual, Mickey Diamond, and a really cool guy, a really nice guy. But every time I've spoken with him, every time I've ever done something with him, I'm always struck by, you know, he's just not your ordinary average cat. That's it. Different guy. So listen to this podcast, and he talks about the pain of being uh, picked over twice for the Motocross Nations and how he really couldn't complain each time, but he would have loved the chance to go to ride for Team USA and he definitely deserved it, but again, he goes into the little bit of the reasoning behind it and everything else. And uh, we talk about his ride at Yamaha, getting the big deal from Yamaha, number six. He was going to be the next guy for sure, and it just never worked out, but he still had a terrific career and uh, raced all over the world, did some GPs and everything else. And uh, yeah, so please sit back, enjoy this classic podcast with the one and only Mickey Diamond. To the Racer X podcast show. Thanks for tuning in this week. I'm the host, Steve Mathis, and I believe in cheese. Remember, everyone, you can go to iTunes and download all the past podcasts and be sure to check out the old Racer X Canada ones. There's gold in there. If there was ever such a thing as a tortured artist in motocross, I think surely it would probably be Mickey Diamond. The 1986 and 1987 125 national champion was a favorite rider of mine back in the day. And I remember magazine stories proclaiming his love of poetry and all things Motley Crue. Mickey was forced out of Honda by a silly AMA rule that made winning a bad thing. And he went to factory Yamaha for the next three years. Didn't really work out over there either. And then the Mick went to Europe. Man, I can't help but think that maybe Mickey Diamond's career would have been different if it weren't for that rule. Saying that if you win twice, you got to leave. And uh, this podcast is a real good one because Mickey gets into everything. Uh, looking back on his career, he realizes that he made some mistakes along the way, and he doesn't really sound like a guy that's uh, bitter or blames anyone else. He, he sounds like a guy that's at peace with himself and doesn't really blame everybody, like, like I said. And uh, he, I even give him a chance to, and he doesn't take it. So listen in as uh, the Mick talks about his days at Honda, days at Yamaha. 
days with the crew and uh and of course his days in europe winding up his career and uh don't forget mickey's made a nice comeback in the supermoto area and even won a title an ama title uh, a couple years back so he's just coming back from a broken leg right now but uh he is taking part in the series so you can look for him there as well as he does some riding for bmw here and there he does pike's peak um just a real busy guy and a real versatile rider as well it's all in here, and make sure you listen to the end as I have a trivia question where you can win some cool prizes from the Work Series and Scott Goggles. Thanks for listening to the RacerX podcast, and here it is, me and the two-time 125 national champion, Mickey Diamond. This is David Pingree, and you're listening to the RacerX podcast show. And if you don't like it, go f*** yourself. Mickey Diamond, thank you for doing the Racer X podcast. Uh, you were one of my favorite riders growing up, and, and I got to say it's cool to, to finally uh, do one of these with you, and uh, I appreciate it. What's going on with you nowadays? I'm still doing some racing, the Supermoto Series. I will go to Pikes Peak again, and this year I get to go to Bonneville and, and give that a shot and kind of do an event that I've always kind of dreamed of. Um, doing and I'm looking forward to that as well as working with a couple of riders that are um, ones in Supercross and um, also working with Larry Lynn Kogel who's um, one of the founders of Metal Militia and um, helping with his recovery and his training program and the release of his documentary. Cool. Sounds exciting. What uh, What's your take on the whole Supermoto thing? It's kind of lost its momentum a little bit, huh? Um, yeah, the the series has had some peaks and valleys, and um, it's riding out maybe uh, through the wreckage to have a, a, a niche again, and hopefully with the X Games, a couple of other events with some new direction with um, Daytona Group, it can get foothold like it had in the beginning yeah i'm gonna go to that vegas one at south point i think that'll be pretty cool sounds like a neat track so yeah it's got there's a, still yeah there's still really awesome events um the racing is a lot closer than than most disciplines the the availability is kind of limited at times even though it would seem to have more more freedom to go pretty much anywhere mm-hmm. um but I, I really think that whoever comes out and gives it a shot, has a look, really becomes somewhat of a fan, yet it just hasn't seemed to just grab everybody's attention the way that, say, Supercross has and uh, built up that type of a, a following yet. Yeah, I mean, the potential, you know, I always thought that downtown courses were really cool watching them on TV, and I don't know why they don't go more places like that instead of out in the boonie road race places, but, again, I guess I'm not the promoter, so... Yeah, it's difficult to to be an onlooker and and be able to understand why they don't do it a certain way. Yeah, and stay with what works. But um, you know, I, I think that's it's great that we can go anywhere. But sometimes that's also a you know a bad thing. All right. Well, we don't have a ton of time, so let's let's go back in the time machine right now, uh, all the way back to uh, your Mako and Husky days. I'm wondering. What made you ride those bikes back then? Because they were kind of, um, you know, a little bit on the end of their creative. What made you decide to ride those two brands? Um, well, 
support for one. My dad was also a big fan of uh, the, you know, the brand, mm-hmm. and I think at that time it was more those those were the cooler, more successful brands, and and that that was probably the initial way that that um, the drops my dad to purchase the bike. Yeah, um, I kind of rode whatever he liked <laughs> in the beginning, and and they were good, you know. Yep. It, Comparative to now, the European brands, apart from KTM, are not so competitive in motocross, but uh, they were at that time. But in in 85, when you rode Huskies, you actually finished, I think, fourth or fifth in the series, Um, so the bike had been pretty decent. What was that like being a factory Husky guy in 85? Um, it was actually it was actually really good. They were out of San Diego. I was in Orange County. Um, there was also Pro Circuit was a Husky dealer back then. Um, it was kind of nice to be on a brand where it was just me and um, at the time there was me, Andy, Stacy, um, second year. Danny Laporte was part of the team, so we were little guys in the big pond and. And we had some, some. I think we had a lot of supporters, silent supporters, <laughs> that were out there that wanted to see us do good. And um, the bikes were behind a bit, or let's say a big bit. But um, you mean it wasn't as good as Bailey's Works 500 Honda? Uh, no, we were. <laughs> well, Brock, he was riding a stock Yamaha. Yeah. And you know, in hindsight, I don't think we were too too much different than him. Yeah. But um, the other guys, yeah, you know, and Supercross, they were on works bikes, and we had we had motors that had um, copper pipes, <laughs> where porting would be if there was enough material there, um, <laughs> and Bondo, and yeah. uh, we had some exciting times with those. With the guys that were involved, Mark Blackwell or Dick Burleson, there was really some incredible people that at the time I didn't know who they were mm-hmm. or what they'd done. But um, in hindsight, there were pretty special times. And because I was alone and got all the attention, it was pretty special. Yeah. You know? Did you did you make any money, like, relative back then? Were, were you on a good salary and everything? Um, I think in... Uh, in '85, I might have made twenty-four thousand dollars. That's not that bad, right? I mean, no, yeah, no. right. Um, I could be wrong. It might have been twelve, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Something it, like that. I I lived at home. Uh, my dad was still supporting everything else I did, um, and I had it made. And in the '80s, um, in Southern California. What more could you ask for as a as a wannabe motorcycle or motocross racer or supercross rider? It was the most awesome time ever, you know? I remember thinking that the bike looked cool with that lowered tank, and, and, and I saw some photos as a kid, and I was like, he looks good on that thing. But, I mean, that was just your, <laughs> your riding style and the lowered tank. I thought it was cool. Hey, when I was a, a fan, you know, reading the magazines about you, the the oddest thing in the world happened and that was you were picked to ride a honda 125 the next year and when you were a big bike guy generally 
what was the deal behind that and how talk about when you got the call from DeCoster and how that Honda ride came together I, it, to me as a kid in Canada it seemed like a left field pick you know what I mean um yeah I think you're not alone in that I I, I had a lot of uh basically even the even the press at the time was like what are these guys crazy <laughs> when they took this guy and um I did get a call from Dave Arnold, actually, okay. at first. Um, I learned later that Roger also helped with picking me. And um, I, in 85, I did um, have what I meant earlier by I think we had some quiet, you know, supporters. Um, some of the Honda people were talking to me a bunch, and even David Bailey and Johnny O'Mara would come over and say, hey, you're doing this doing that line over there and you know they were talking to me and Chris Haynes who later became my mechanic uh, spoke to us quite a few times mm -hmm. and when I did get the call from Honda I was I might even have said you know this is a joke and hung <laughs> up on somebody but right. um, it was like that and I got a test I went out and did the test and um, I got a deal and uh, it was surreal, you know, now that I can look back and remember it yeah. for what it was, but a really opportunistic time because I think uh, Lachine had gotten in trouble and, you know, all the the stars aligned for a moment and I got a call and, and that was the launch that I needed. And um, it was amazing to get on a Honda after what what I, you know, what at the time the Huskies were great, but that's all I'd ridden. And then when I got on these other, you know, got on uh, the Hondas, it was the first year of the production rule for everyone. Right. So I used comparison testing where I was riding Lachine's works bike, and riding those works bikes was just unbelievable, you know, mm -hmm. for a 19 year old kid or how old? Maybe I was 20. Um, 19 or 20 and you know I felt a little bit of the weight of the whole world because I needed to produce now I couldn't couldn't go out there and just look for a top five anymore right. you know um, where I was breaking all the rules and impressing the hell out of everybody on a Husky it wasn't going to be so impressive anymore and, you know on a Honda on a work bike or a production style work bike yeah pretty much yeah i know what you mean yeah um so and i i ended up with chris haynes as mechanic and he became more a mentor and uh, an advisor and a friend and um a teammate in a sense because it was him and he, him and i were racing against everybody and mm -hmm. um i him a lot because he helped me to learn how to win and things like that and we had a really great first year and ended up with the championship um i won my first national race that you know maybe the second round i think i won a moto and then mm -hmm. the third third and fourth round i think i won and uh i was changed forever you know you become you know not not a not the same anymore you see yourself winning instead of you know you, you, it's no more it's no more guessing you know yeah. it's not hope anymore it's for real and uh, that's kind of how it 
started to snowball. Yeah, you you won three nationals in '86, and you won, you ended up winning the title, three out of the the twelve rounds. And I mean, obviously that the pick paid off. Do you remember at any point thinking that you were in over your head? Do you remember thinking, oh man, I I, I don't know if I can win? I mean, you know, like how was the pressure for you being on Honda? Um, all the way up to the first race, and the first race, I I can't remember how. It, it was at Gainesville, and mm-hmm. up until the first race, I'm still, <laughs> I was pretty sheltered. Yeah. You know, we, um, with Chris Haynes, he kept me away from a lot of it, and that was the day that we were come out swinging, and um, we did, but I had, I, I didn't handle the pressure so well. I crashed in the first turn, I think. In the first race, I crashed in the first turn. Um, maybe I had the speed, but not consistent, not um, not too uh, precise. You know, I was I was all over the map, and and uh, it's, I got through that race and and got two decent finishes. I can't remember what they were. Maybe a third and a sixth or something, but. Uh, uh, and then that pressure became more will, and I can now, and uh, and it just kept rolling from there. And I had great support. Those guys didn't want to see me fail; they wanted to see me succeed. So everybody was—I uh, don't know if they were pleased or disappointed, but I think that we did okay for the first few rounds until I got a taste of what what I what I was looking for, and yeah. then. It was over at that point. Um, we didn't win too many overalls that year, but we had moments in the series where we were the strongest, and then then it was a the point lead and and all that. So we may not have won as many races as we could have, but I, I'd learned a lot and learned how to test, learned how to find the settings and find them quick. And carburation was was uh, something I never messed with much. Yeah. Um, there to Honda, but it was every weekend. We spent an hour or so every Saturday and sometimes just dirt lots or dirt roads and getting carburation right. And mm-hmm. we always had the best bike. And it was always running at its it, maximum. Yeah, it was, the, the reason I bring that up is because I re- distinctly remember a photo of you of an MXA from Gainesville. You know, you had to do that for the first national real early then. And it said something like, Honda's new recruit is not up to par or whatever. Mickey Diamond goes seven, eight, or who knows what you did. But, And I remember thinking, ah, oh, you know, this guy, who knows? You know, maybe he can't ride a 125, but obviously it was changed. So um, you probably never read the magazines, but I definitely remember that. Yeah, I know that there was a lot of uh, – I think that there always has been. And, and maybe that's just me being sensitive. But, you know, the second year that I rode for Honda um, – you know, I, I think I was the first actual case of uh, Epstein-Barr virus, but yeah, I didn't know what it was. Nobody really knew, and and I just had trained myself into oblivion, you know, where I I had nothing, and um, I had I had to actually pull out of Supercross because I just was I was exhausted, mm-hmm. and um, but I was more ready to win than ever until I started to get sick and then um you know there was still you know this is through december time and 
you know, I just let myself uh, get worse and worse, and I never took days off. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm I'm dying yeah. and exhausted. And uh, that's how I started the second season. So, again, it was, you know, hey, Mick's sick, you know, right. it's over. And, um <laughs> Because uh, didn't didn't you kill it in the off season supercrosses in '86? Wasn't didn't you do it um, pretty good? I started to win in that. You know, yeah. I, I went to to Paris and I got to win one of the races in Paris um, through. It was three days, three nights, and um, I got to win. But I also got to be up front. I had a motor problem one night and ended up second. Was still like. Yeah, uh, and, and the bike made it to the finish, but I I um, had started to feel myself as okay, I can win. I can win on anything. Yeah, super. You know, wherever yeah. I go, right. I should be able to win now. And um, uh, again, I you know I didn't sense that there was anything wrong with me, and I just thought, well, I'm tired. I need to train more, and uh, right. and hurt myself in the process and my chances for supercross that year because even when i started you know anaheim won uh, i think i had a good battle with wardy to win the heat race and should have been stronger in the main but i fell down i ended up fourth or something like that mm-hmm. but uh i had i had plenty of speed and and i was i was good at supercross stuff and i just had to pull back um and in the outdoor series the first few rounds were were risky because i was the same you know i'd be out yeah. in front and have a couple laps to go and just hit the wall and uh it took maybe by the third race i'd fallen back in the championship and by the third race i'd been diagnosed and had i had a doctor that actually trained or that kept kept after me during the week and traveled with me on the weekends and Dr. Fagan, um, who's still active occasionally with Suzuki now. Um, but, um, once there was a way to, to, to get better, um, and to heal from it, um, I didn't do much but rest and eat. Mm -hmm. And as my, you know, as the, the virus was, was getting beat up, inside my body and I was getting healthy again on the outside I was still benefiting from all the training that I had done prior to being sick and um, when I did come back I started I started winning again and and was was strong and and was able to to march back up in the points and get back to the lead again yeah the uh, I remember the magazines called it mono did you actually ever figure it out was it just an Epstein bar thing was that sort um of- it, it was yeah they had another there was another abbreviation of some terms yeah. that was maybe CMV or chronic fatigue syndrome CFS or something um, yeah the, and for a while, you know, I, I'd seen a couple doctors and, and nobody knew. So, I mean, people were maybe guessing that this guy's just a psychological basket case. And, <laughs> um, uh, but it wasn't that at all. And, yeah. and then when it did go away, then I got strength again um, and finished out my year pretty strong with Honda. Right. I, got to, I got to go and try to be a part of the 
actually in 86, I got to go and race a world championship race at the end of the year so that I might be able to go and be a part of the Trophy the Nations team, which was a huge, a huge thing that I never got. Yeah. I never got to experience. That's my next question. You win the title in 87. You're two-time 125 champion, and they pick Hannah to go to Unadilla. Um, I, get, I mean, they won, so looking back, I guess it was the right choice, but are you a little bitter on that still years later? I mean, what, what was the circumstances behind that? Uh, no, I'm not bitter, and I understand what they did. Um, I just... Because you definitely deserve to be there, no doubt about that, you know? I, I believe both years I deserve to be there. The first one, I went and rode the last world championship race, and I killed it. And those are the guys I was going to be racing against. Was that Brazil? And I thought that I had, you know, uh, and then, you know, Johnny went and rode the same bike, rode my bike, and it was awesome. And Johnny Johnny had his great ride right. in Majora, and I thought that, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't say that either Bob Hanna or Johnny O'Mara didn't deserve to be part of the Trophy the Nation team. <laughs> that would be stupid to right. say, but right. I do wish that I had experienced but I understand why I didn't. And uh, what were you ever like? Was it ever? Were they ever like, "Hey, yeah, you're in," but and then we're picking Hannah? Like, how close did you come to going? Was it always sort of like, "Hey, we're picking Hannah from the start in '87"? Like, how much uh, were you in the running for a little while, and then? I think I was always in the running, and I don't know that it was always decided that Hannah would ride a 125. I, I, yeah, I just crossed my fingers and hoped. Um, the first year we went to Brazil, and maybe in hindsight, I'm seeing that I got to go to Brazil to ride that as a consolation. And Honda may have been like, you know what, we feel like shit that he's not going, but right. we're all on Hondas, so why could we? We can't complain. So um, send him over there, and you know. But I think it was in my mind. I thought if I if I am impressive, and I make statement here then i get to go i get to go yeah and i don't i don't know if anybody said that outright but that's what i thought yeah and, um and, and another I thing i rode yeah. myself into the ground there and i won i didn't just win yeah. i won by like one moto i won by plus 60 seconds i had a, over a minute lead on that, the guy that'd be like vandenberg and strebos and those guys huh in 125 yeah so those were the guys that you know Johnny ended up going to race, and right. um, but I uh, I was prepared and mm -hmm. did everything that I could possibly do to to show and um, be ready to go there and and do the job that that I was supposed to do. Um, so in hindsight, I don't, I don't have regrets of what I've done, or I'm not bitter about it. I just wish that I had been a part of it. And then the kicker is, too, like, they pick Hannah for the 125, and he does nothing but bitch and moan about how he doesn't want to ride a 125. You know, I mean, he definitely made it known that he didn't want to ride a 125, but uh, Wardy and RJ wouldn't wouldn't do anything. So I guess, mm -hmm. you know, you're sitting there going, I'll ride a 125, guys. Uh, no problem. Yeah. You know? I will. I'll I'll ride it from here, you know, in California to New York and ride it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, I'll push it there, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. It, for what it's worth, when it rained and it was all shitty and muddy, yeah. I didn't feel sorry for him anymore. Yeah. I was like, okay. Because he was in his own there, and 
I'm sure that whatever he was riding, he was probably liking it. Yeah, exactly. Knowing that guy. Uh, you know? Yeah, and and so you you're two time you're two time 125 national champion. They make a rule where you had to get kicked out of the class after winning it twice. Did you knew about the rule the whole time, and you were like, did you think you were going to Honda in '88, or did they sort of make it clear you were out and you had to go look for a ride? I mean, talk about kind of a a, a double kick in the balls. You, you, the Des Nations deal, and then two time title winner, and you got to go. You're out. What was the, what was that deal? At the time, I just felt like stunned, like someone just punched me in the face. I didn't, um, I didn't have any answers for it. I, I, I thought that I would get picked up to, to stay on Honda, uh -huh. um, regardless. But um, that was a year of also people were getting released, uh, personnel and mm -hmm. uh, mechanics and so forth. So I. I kind of hung out and crossed my fingers for a little bit until I think Roger and Dave um, both kind of gave me a heads up and said, "Hey, go look," because <laughs> I don't think these guys—they're gonna—they're gonna wait until there ain't nothing available and they're gonna give you the—they're gonna give you a support deal or something. So, um, so I—I I actually I believe I got a call from Yamaha. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I called them, but I think they called me. Um, I got some weird call from uh, Kajiva that paid a lot of money, and I would ride one of those. And I ended up just jumping on board with Yamaha, and I really got uh, the warmest reception ever. And didn't have an agent, didn't have any of that, so I just um, went and organized my own deal, kind of yeah. accepted what they offered, and... It had to was, been. It had been pretty good, though, right? I mean, more money than you made a Honda, right? Or no? Um, not much. Really? Not much, really. But um, that I was to be like the, you know, the number one guy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was. It was a. It was a. It was a sweeter deal than I was going to get anywhere else. Right. And it was with Yamaha, and those people were great in the beginning. Um, the bike was a step backwards at the time. Mm -hmm. I think everything was compared to Honda's at that time. So the bike was the dip most difficult thing to adjust to, but the people were so eager to get back in the game, and they liked me because I was maybe new and... and um, Number six, so you were, like, you know, one of the top guys for sure. Yeah, well, we... We started strong, and and I rode the bike, and I, I think at the time there wasn't. I mean, we were. I was maybe more the freestylish guy, so out of the supercross track, I'd jump a bunch of weird stuff, and and it was kind of exciting. Like, wow, this guy's got skills that we're not used to. And I think they had at the time Stanton, and Brock was coming off of injury, um, so um, things were looking up for the times. The supercross tracks were getting more and more, you know, obstacle-injected uh, size. They're, like, it was getting more flashy, the bigger jumps. And I remember Hannah, 
<laughs> I remember Hannah talking about this isn't a circus. It's a, you know, <laughs> Everybody, calm down. Nobody wants to yeah. jump on anybody. Yeah, no, we're I... going to outlaw jumps. And uh, yeah. Bailey had been hurt the year before, um, and there was there was a lot of talk about that, and and uh, and I was just the opposite. Like, build more shit. You know, <laughs> I want to be able to do everything, and those guys will suffer and pay the price for not being able to do it. But it uh, started out pretty good with Yamaha, and, and I think I was... Um, you led you know, Anaheim was, 1, didn't you? What's that? You led Anaheim 1, 88, uh, well, didn't you? I was up front. I, I actually... Rick and, and Wardy were up front, and I started like sixth, and then I caught him. Yeah. And I think I had passed Rick and went down at the same time, and then I got up, and then Wardy had gone down, so I... I ended up finishing second in the end, but had a legitimate chance to win. Um, and we had like a, like a little bit of a three-way battle for I don't know how many laps right. until, until I fell. Then Wardy fell. Rick stayed up and ended up winning, but um, I think Wardy and I were the faster ones that night, and we both went down. So um, Rick was the guy that, at that time, maybe he wasn't always the fastest guy, but he just kept chipping away until he was. You know, at the end of the race, he was just as fast as your best time in practice, you know. Right. Um, and he just dieseled through everything, you know. <laughs> One of the more amazing things is that you you never finished top ten in Supercross in the points. And, you know, like, I, like you said, you were, a, you were a good Supercross rider, and you could see that watching old tapes, but – just injuries and illness and everything, just amazingly enough, you never finish in the top ten uh, in Supercross. It just it blows my mind. Yeah, I never won a U.S. Supercross either. Yeah. Um, I won other ones in Europe and, and other countries, but I, I never was able to win one in the U.S. And a few of the ones, I thought one time I'm going to win Daytona, and I was just ready, and mm -hmm. I, uh, I got out front. And I went down and uh, kind of got stuck on this little hay bale thing. And um, and then the very next lap, I, I went down, but I regrouped, and I still had maybe a chance. And and then I made contact with a rider and broke my foot um, without even falling. Just their bikes hit together and, and broke my foot. So Yeah, you're in, uh, the, you're in that list of guys like Lampson and Cooper, you know, that just – never won one and, and you know it's one of the mind-blowing statistics of our sport yeah just uh, there's guys that have won them that you know hey rick ryan won a daytona <laughs> yeah um uh, uh dubak i mean all yeah. kinds of guys that won just one race and um i never got that one race and i loved being in europe for some reason because we would always just have, you know, pipes and suspension and whatever. And, and then I thought, okay, nobody's got an advantage on me, and I, I could win some of those. But um, we just never got one in the U.S. or in Japan. I, I thought I could win in Japan, too, a couple times. And yeah. That'll some happen, you know? <laughs> well, for what it's worth, in, 80, in 88, you were pretty much the sweetest looking guy with your number sixes that he been made and your pink and black and white gear. So I don't know, just if you ever want to take consolation, I thought you, you looked the best. <laughs> yeah. I, 
I, you know, we always tried to look good. Yeah. I think that was the '80s too. We're we're pretty pretty much uh you know hey if you look good that's like half the battle you know <laughs> you always had the hair coming uh, out the back you know yeah i think i re- uh, read something about uh oh, i just had like a bad week where people were talking about my hair and then uh, uh i got added to a list of people that pingry took people from all over the the you know the last mm-hmm. thirty or forty years and made the perfect guy for racing. Oh and, yeah, I remember. And that. Somebody said something that I was in it, and I'm like, "Cool, what for? <laughs> for your hair?" I'm like, "Ah, yeah, yeah thanks, Pink." So, yeah, I went and got a haircut that next day. Well, and then I remember <laughs> I remember asking Heben. I'm like, "Hey, where'd you get those number sixes from? Those are look so cool." And I remember in a garage trying to cut them out and make them. Like that, and uh-huh. he even told me how he made templates, plastic templates, and he said Mickey Mickey had to have the coolest looking bike because he had the coolest looking gear. So that was very important to you. He been said so he made those number sixes, yeah. and he explained to me he still has the template. He's like, I'll borrow it to you if you want. So it was pretty funny. Damn, it's too bad they didn't have black rims back then. Too. Yeah, that would have been nice. And John R. I- Go ahead. Uh, John R., well, I worked at Yamaha as a mechanic for four years, and John R. had some good Mickey Diamond stories, too, and they involve you jumping massive jumps at the Yamaha track. Oh, so. yeah. You know, um, Chris's father passed away on a trip that we were in in Europe and at uh, Supercross in Paris. Um, John R. was my mechanic for, for the weekend, and... Um, you you would you would go out and you would ride three times. You'd have a qualifier, a semi, and then right. the main. And um, did the qualifier and and came in and and I was doing a jump and uh, they didn't like it. They thought it was too dangerous, so they put like little whoops before it. Oh no way! And um, and as it were, you would go out and do the start and do that section. Then you'd loop around and do it again. And when I did the start, I thought I could still jump this. So. Um, on the second loop around, but let me slow down. We did the heat race, and then they changed it. Yeah. And then um, John R. goes down underneath the tunnels, and we're working on the bikes. Then as soon as we're ready, he goes up into the stands. I ride out to do the start, do a parade lap, and then I lined it up. And when I lined it up, I I clipped a hay bale, and I cartwheeled the bike on the parade lap <laughs> and ripped the radiator off and all this. And John yeah. R., didn't see it because he was going upstairs so i'm like riding back to the or walking back to the pit and um he uh john R got to a seat and they you know the spectators had to tell him kind of in french or whatever that i'd already wrecked the bike <laughs> diamond crash parade lap so he had to come down and fix it and then we missed the semi and then we had to ride the last chance and we still got in the race but um We'd do that, or out at the Yamaha test track, I'd try to jump something and break something. Yeah. Um, I remember breaking a frame, like, at the headset. Just <laughs> made it a chopper. <laughs> yeah, they those guys, they got tired of me bugging them for, like, Mickey Diamond stories and Glover stories and everything. So I think that's probably, you know, they they got really tired of me telling them, asking them to tell me stories. Hey, for and back then, you were in the magazines for hanging out with Motley Crue. Talk about that, like, how much bros were you with them and, and, and that kind of deal? Um, well, I kind of met them through, they were fans of racing and, um, Tommy and his, 
his tech guy at the time, a guy named Clyde, those two guys were really into motocross racing and supercross, and um, somebody got a hold of me, and it, there's some other funny stories that I'll tell you over a beer sometime. But, yeah, I probably, uh, yeah, this is a family show. Yeah, the, the the big thing was those guys really were into racing, and, mm-hmm. and I was totally into their music, and it was like, you know, a super surprise, like, I'm all nervous that he's calling, and and um, and uh, anyway, we started to go do stuff together. Um, they weren't playing at that time, but he took me to some shows, um, and I met you know other famous musicians, and you know he was married to Heather Locklear, and I met them. And um, so this wasn't like a one-time thing, or like you were you were buddies with him. Uh, well, we we did hang around. I mean, we 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 got to go and ride a bunch. Oh, cool! Um, I did a lot of, you know, he took me to a lot of shows, and and then when they started playing, I went to a lot of their shows. Um, just a great guy, you know, mm-hmm. and was a total motocross and supercross enthusiast. You know, all of them seemed to be. Um, a lot of the other guys that I ended up meeting at the shows were, they knew who I was, and really, and, yeah. Um, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them knew who I was and knew all about racing. And, um, you know, I actually, you know, got those guys wanted all kinds of motocross to come to his show. And um, we did a Motley show in San Diego where I think they give out probably 30 different tickets, you know, daily and all kinds of people got to go and see the show and, and they were they even made a statement during the oh. during the show I, I can't remember if he wore my jersey or whatever but yeah, it, yeah. it was something cool like that but it was fun um, I actually you know I like spending time with the guy because he's just a really cool guy and we'd ride Harleys together and do stuff like that but uh, you know his life went another way mine did too and I don't speak to him that much nowadays but every now and then I'll get to speak to him and um, try to get him to a race mm-hmm. uh, he goes to maybe the X Games so maybe I've seen there but um, you know we've hit and missed a couple times when he was doing some work in Connecticut you know a couple years ago he was going to come down, but he had a show the same night. Um, we couldn't do both. You know, I couldn't go to his, he couldn't go to mine, and I ended up winning, and, and it would have been nice to see him then. It's cool. It's like a lifelong friendship, really. Like, it's not just something that, uh, you know, was was a little bit here and there. Like, it sounds like you guys were buddies and still are. Well, I, you know, I think he's that kind of person that, like, you know, he's a real genuine, caring person that you – you don't you don't meet people like that all the time, and you know it, it, it was always like that. You know, I'd run into him after years, and he'd, you know, you, you couldn't just high five and say hi. It was just full blown away, a big spectacle, just to have a hug and get all rowdy. Yeah, was, <laughs> he's just a he's a really cool guy. You know, how were his skills on a dirt bike? Um, well, I think that I mean for for what little time he had on it, yeah. he's like a real excitable guy that would probably had the potential to be really good, you know, if that's what his yeah. his focus was. You know, I think he's one of those guys. You know, anybody that's really good at something really could have done that in a lot of different fields. There he is, you know, yeah. it just was the one he picked. Uh, 
uh, was Yamaha down on it for for you hanging out? Like I, I you know, I can see McCarty not really liking that too much. Were they kind of uh, telling you? <laughs> not no. I, I no. think that after a while, you know, after I stopped having some success over there, um, I broke my hand. I I, I kind of lost my focus and my interest in what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe was more sensitive about a lot of the stuff that had happened over at Honda, and then I was getting this um, intimidate intimidate to motivate uh, approach that didn't was work, making Didn't me, work. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty combative about it. I didn't want to deal with it. McCarty and I had round, we, um, Keith is a great guy, and, I, you know, it, it took me a while to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted the best for his team. He was under pressure. Um, like the other little guy, uh, Kenny, Kenny Clark. He, yeah. He kind of didn't appreciate me after a while. I don't think. I, <laughs> I don't know. You know, at what point I stopped being respectful and and motivated to do um, the greatest job that exist on the planet but i did and i was i was a prick i i know it now but um i let things go away that i still could have just sat back for a little bit and regrouped and then came back you know i could have retreated for a while and then came back and um because one thing one thing nobody would deny is that you have the talent nobody ever you know what i mean you have the talent to to ride a motorcycle and ride it fast. So, yeah, you know, a guy like yeah. you that always has talent, you know. I missed I missed it. I had it there in my hands, and people were trying to keep giving it to me every time I fumbled it. And I, um, I really, I really let myself down through through, through some of those times. Um, uh, and I was looking elsewhere for something, and I don't know what the hell was wrong with me. I need to get <laughs> kicked in the butt, but but I let things slip away, and, and it was um, the biggest regret of my life is that I, I lost all those years, you know? I'm still riding out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> you, finally, you finally got your championship, too. Um, I got another one, and I think I actually hold the record for the longest gap between them. You know, <laughs> if you validate the Supermoto as a full championship, and I think at the time we were doing like eight or twelve races, so yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, I, for sure. I man. think it is. Um, I I really like that I can ride, and I've learned over the years I can ride anything, and especially something new that isn't already you know had years and years of development on i'm perfect for that Mm -hmm. you know shoot i'm looking for work if anybody wants to develop something new yeah i saw you a picture of you on a bmw not too long ago at pikes i think yeah Yeah. um i was in a contract to help them develop that 450 but i didn't really get too much seat time on it and it didn't pan out i think their focus changed the super bike and whatever else so yeah. we we lost it and i heard uh, david knight's bike is really nothing like the production bmw also uh, uh yeah. i wouldn't think so no <laughs> but you know what they're they're that's that's proof that they want to win yeah and i i i don't think they 
really had that in the beginning when I when I was involved with the testing and stuff. Um, they wanted to do it all in house, and it's all their production shit. And you know, um, that would that would be fine down the road when it's fully proven and it's uh, you know it's it's been made and you know it's been shaped and molded multiple times and it's the best. Yeah. You know, but that's really good that they're um, taking the risk, going out yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think so. Real quickly, we'll wrap it up here. What what was it like going to Europe once your American contract with Yamaha expired? Uh, I think did you weren't you Parker teammates with Parker for a while? Yeah. yeah. Well, how was it that? Could have it could have gone better, but <laughs> uh, but the first year I went, I rode for Belgar Yamaha um, under a guy named Martina Bianchi, and um, that was the Yamaha pretty much the Yamaha factory in Italy, mm -hmm. and um, uh, we didn't have as much success as we had, you know, I, I hurt my knee at the first, like four days before the first round, so oh, yeah. we we regrouped, they hung in there with me, I, I made like five of the 11 races, and we got points, you know, we had a podium, we, we're, we didn't, we didn't win, um, and that that season was a long, hard season. It's always hard when you're you pick up and move to a country that you don't even speak the language, and, and then you get hurt. <laughs> yeah, and you're you're you know almost everything. I lived a whole life in racing that hasn't had too much comfort. I have been in a lot of uncomfortable situations because of injury or rules or, or yeah. people for that matter and um, my life is uncomfortable a lot more than people you know it looks all sweet from the outside but it's just the way of my life I, I think that being over there and doing those few years really puts you out in a place that um, that teaches you about hardship and um, struggle, you know, for mm -hmm. simple things. And um, I have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things you do in life that while you're there and while you're living it, it ain't great. And then weeks or months later, they're fond memories. I, I don't understand really how that works, but <laughs> it it takes time to remember things in a happy way. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those experiences for sure. Yeah. Neither year was a success. Neither one was complete. Um, but it's it's a matter of uh, not uh, not accepting all the failures or the potential failure and compromise and um, enduring something that is. At times, a lost cause. It it, it it that makes it sound a lot worse than it really is. It was beautiful to be in Italy. Wake up, go have a coffee. Yeah, really, huh? Um, there's places all over there where you you might drive to a little tiny track and meet the people that have lived on that property, and that has been their sole means of 
60s and you just experience a lot of things that could could be easily forgotten but if you take two minutes and have a look around there's there's some some uh some history and some some things that are just special that you'd never experience if you didn't go and do it no i've spent Um, some time there myself uh over the year yeah it's really cool um you know you're a pretty introspective guy you should write a book you ever thought about that um i would love to yeah um I don't know if it would be all that much fiction or <laughs> you could do some of those stories some of those Motley like Crue stories could make it in there. Um I write a lot. Do I you? don't Yeah. I don't um I since I just phone cuz I use my BlackBerry to write and I yeah. um I can't do it on paper and this phone has a bad keyboard so Yeah, so you're out. I'll be getting a new phone maybe tomorrow. But I do write a lot, and I wish that I had met that guy already that is capable to sit and be patient and write and have the things to say, and I can put down what it is I want to say. But the person and the person I am haven't met yet, so when they do, I will write something. You will do it. And I can't help but think that there's probably a, a lot of Supercross stars of today that could that could benefit from a sit down with you telling them hey listen you're in the best phase of your life right now you know uh appreciate this work at it and you know i i just i think that they a guy like you could teach some lessons yeah you know you're not gonna believe this but i did a little interview with larry huffman like a week or so ago on brock glover's breathe easy ride oh yeah and um Larry asked me some question about, uh, I think he quoted Goat Brecker and said that this thing that you're doing now is going to be over before, you know, before the day's through. And I I thought about it for a second. I'm like, yeah, but nobody's going to know it. You know, nobody's going to see it. It's, it is over quick. And there's, uh, you know, some guys have figured out how to get through it and still hold on to everything. But there's very few Carmichael's out there and, and Stewart's. And, uh, you know, there's a few guys that um, that just rise to that level. And the thing is, that's weird is, you know, when you're, when you're away from it for a while and you've seen it, you know what it's like to be, you know, to go to the track and be the fastest guy. Yeah. You um, realize that, you know, there's this huge prejudice out there that everybody believes these are the only guys that can win. They're the only guys that right now believe they're supposed to win, and they do the work that it takes so that they can win. But a lot of guys are are um, they they're doing the work. They just haven't decided to to risk it all and 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 make that theirs. You know, mm-hmm. and um, there's people that have careers that are close but no cigar and um you know it it's sometimes amazing to watch um and yeah there's some guys that have way more talent than others but i've seen guys win that weren't that guy yeah um uh, i would say that uh to develop that skill 
takes, you know, it, it takes some risk on your part. You have to be willing to risk it and get it out there. And if you can't find it on your own, maybe somebody can help you get there and do it. But you still got to be accountable for for the the successes and failures on your own. But there's there's a lot out there that that I think people will always take for granted in any sport, any mm-hmm. yeah, anything. Um, a job, even know. a job in life or whatever, you know. Yeah, well, if I had a sweet job right now. I'd, probably be too busy to talk to you today (laughs) (laughs) no i wouldn't be but i i really i really think that it's hard to teach somebody the value of what they've got you know yeah Um, i think i think maybe you deserve a feature at racer x i'll run it by coombs i i I wrote a story long ago for that magazine you know i think it was i stole hunter thompson's fear and loathing i did (laughs) fear and loathing in las vegas supercross yeah yeah it's old, but um, I wrote it just like I was Hunter Thompson. Yeah, yeah. I, went, I left practice and went to the strip bar, and then we hustled over and caught the mains. <laughs> that uh, that probably why it maybe didn't make it because you wrote it like Hunter S. Thompson. No, it was in. Oh, it, it was, was in. in the, yeah. yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I tell I Dave. I don't remember. Tell Dave, you want to see it? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I can't remember. It was probably ninety-five, maybe ninety. Was it the newspaper days? Or magazine. It was the newspaper. Oh, day. okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to ask him about that for sure. Well, hey, thanks for doing this, man. Uh, kept you longer than what you thought, so I appreciate. Yeah, it. Yeah, I'm at Larry's. He's probably going. What the? F- <laughs> no, I appreciate it, man. I've, like I said, I, I was always a fan, and uh, you were a guy that I've wanted to do this with for a long time, and finally remembered to ask Pingree for your number, and uh, that was it. Well, thanks for the walk down memory lane a bit. Um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to go up to Seattle, to Salt Lake, and then to Vegas with Derek Costella. Cool. And I'm uh, I'm in uh, personal hell, having a divorce, and, oh, man. and uh, dealing with all kinds of other shit. So. Yeah, go to the races and get your mind off it for a little while. There you go. Yeah. That sounds like a plan. All right, well, thanks, Mickey. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for being on the Racer X podcast show. No problem. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, bye. All right, that was the Mickey Diamond podcast. Uh, pretty good one, I think. Mick was a good guest, good guest. And uh, hopefully one day I get to sit down and hear some of those Motley Crue stories uh, over a beer that I can't share with you on public airwaves. But uh, now it's time for the trivia question. The JR Publications Scott Goggles trivia question. Do you have that important race report, newsletter, or product release to get out? Let JR Publications help you with your press distribution needs. Email Jason at jr-publications.com today. Today's trivia winner will receive a works t-shirt and a copy of Kurt Caselli's film, As the Gears Turn. So cool stuff. Uh, if you're listening and you'd like to purchase a copy of the uh, As the Gears Turn, please visit www.asthegearsturn.com. Also, Scott Goggles is on board. We're going to give away some Scott Goggles, probably a T-shirt. I haven't worked that part out yet, but it'll be something from Scott Goggles. And the trivia question is, Mickey Diamond won the 1986 and 1987 125 national titles. I want to know the riders that finished behind Mickey in each of those years. So two riders, two second-place finishes, and you can email me at mathis at racerxonline.com. That's also the email you can use to send me who you want to see on this show and uh, 
We'll try to get it up as soon as we can. Once again, thanks for listening. Get those answers in, and I'll see you next week.